Greetings, brothers and sisters. Let us begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Help me to preach faithfully and help us to respond rightly. Soften our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A dad and his five-year-old son were driving past a graveyard there, and there were fresh graves that's just been dug. The son noticed one particular fresh soil mounded at the side of a grave. And immediately the son, the son exclaimed, Look, Daddy, one got out. Well, the father would not have given any credence to what his son shouted out. Easter is all about the one who got out of that grave. And in today's passage, we will see how people respond to that shocking news. So we begin our passage in verse 1, where we are introduced to Mary Magdalene. Now we don't know much about her, but we do know that Jesus cast out seven demons from her, and she had become a follower of Jesus since then. Can you imagine what life would have been like for her? Being under the influence of not one or two, but seven demons, and then being freed from all of that to the power of Jesus. This perhaps helps us to see why she seems to be so devoted to Jesus, unlike most of the disciples who have dispersed. Here is a woman whose very life is restored because of Jesus. And in one sense, she had learned to trust and rely on Jesus for her protection. So we see her showing her devotion to Jesus by going to his tomb to complete the burial. It's often those who have benefited greatly from Jesus who exhibit great royalty. They know what he means to them, not through intellectual exercise, but through lived experience. We find out from the text, she has come to the tomb early while it is still dark, probably because there's a lot of work to be done to complete the burial of Jesus which was rushed because of the Sabbath and Passover celebration. But when she reached the grave, she saw that the stone that functioned as the door to the grave was missing. The stone has been rolled away. So we see in verse 2 that she immediately ran to Peter and the other disciples who's, who's, re, uh, who's, who's referred to here as the one who's beloved by Jesus who I think is most likely the author of this gospel, John himself. Now notice what she says to them. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now some liberal theologians speculated that perhaps the disciples of Jesus were hoping and longing so much for Jesus to be raised up that they mentally convinced themselves that Jesus has been raised. According to them, the resurrection was just a trick of the mind, brought on by delusional minds that desperately wanted to see Jesus again. But notice here, this idea that Jesus could have been raised up did not even enter her mind. She saw the grave open and she assumed that someone had stolen the body of Jesus and hidden it. This really puts that delusion theory to rest, doesn't it? None of the disciples were expecting Jesus to be raised from the dead. And we can see here that this was not something that they were desperately hoping for here. The loss of the body of Jesus came as a shock to them 
because they had not expected him to be raised up. And yet the irony of this, friends, is that this is exactly what Jesus has promised them. And if they have believed, then they would be expecting this. So with that, we come to verse 3. And we see that Peter and the other disciples went to the tomb. Most likely, they were outraged that someone might have come in and desecrated the tomb of Jesus. And we see that in verse 4, that they were in fact riled up enough that they ran all the way to the grave. And here we see John, while being modest enough not to put his own name, is not above showing that he won up Peter again. And this is a theme that we have been seeing throughout John's Gospel, and is particularly characteristic of John's Gospel. And friends, this helps us to see the genuineness of the account. If this was an unrelated third party writing a fictional story, there'd be no reason to have these kind of details. And this shows us that what is happening here is actually eyewitness account. So, having reached the tomb, we see in verse 5 that the beloved disciple didn't dare to go in. Without entering, she stooped in to look in and he could see the linen cloths lying there. We don't know why, but perhaps seeing only the linen cloths instead of a body wrapped in linen gave him pause. He must be worried that if the body of Jesus has been desecrated, if someone had removed the body from the linen, then to go in is to come face to face with what people who hate Jesus may have done to his body. That wouldn't be something that anyone would want to see of their dead loved ones, isn't it? So it is understandable that despite reaching first, she froze up at the entrance. And then we see in verse 6, Simon Peter finally reaching the tomb, having run all the way. Unlike the other disciple, he does not pause and he enters into the tomb. And this is so Peter, isn't it? The one that acts first, brave, and sometimes unthinking. And what does Peter see? He too saw the linen clothes lying there. And interestingly, the Greek used here subtly shifts its meaning from when it says the first disciple saw the linen. Here, when it says he saw, the word is better translated to have the connotation of he noticed or he observed opposed to just he saw. Well, it's a small detail here. It shows us that John is trying to imply that Peter made an observation rather than just passively seeing the linen and the face cloth. Peter goes in, sees the scene, and he realizes something. So what is John trying to draw attention to? What did Peter observe? Well, once we take note of that subtle shift in the Greek word used for seeing, then we want to pay close attention to the rest of the Greek language in the text. Now, one thing that we can notice is that the word that was used to say that the cloth was folded up can also be translated as wrapped up or rolled up. So the implication here is that it wasn't so much that the cloth was taken, folded into a neat square, but rather it's saying that it remains folded up in the way a turban is folded up when carefully removed. 
So it's possible that it's talking about how it still retained the shape of a head. And it implies that all that remains are just the fabric and the body is missing. One commentator noted that perhaps because of the spices used, the face cloth was a little stiff, wouldn't have been easy to remove and still kept up its rolled up shape. And this, together with the fact that the linen is still there where the body was supposed to be, kind of hints towards the fact that the body couldn't have been removed by someone else, but rather it points to a form of supernatural intervention. It, it kind of hints that something raised Jesus out of the binding of the fabric that was used to preserve the body. We do see later, Jesus walks into a closed room. And so in the same way, we get this impression that Jesus had phased out of the burial fabric. Now, if you watch the Avengers movie, one of the characters, the Vision, has the ability to pass through solid objects like walls and doors. And it seems to be that the author is indicating here that something similar happened to Jesus. Now, what is the significance of this? And why does John point out this to us ever so subtly? Well, to begin with, we can rule out that this was someone stealing the body. It would be really weird for them to take a body, remove the wrapping, and the face cloth carefully, and then leave it back where the body was. So what happened here was intentional, and John goes to great pains to make this clear. And this also hints at a miraculous event rather than a normal one. Now, you might have heard some people argue for this so-called swoon theory, that at the cross, Jesus fainted, and people accidentally buried him, but actually he's alive. Now, this is about as silly as arguments can get because we know he was pierced and the water and blood came out of his side. But we can look at how this is being hinted in the text to see that John is implying that there's something supernatural happening here rather than just him waking up and removing the bindings. If he had revived as this so-called swoon theory postulates, then we won't expect the face cloth to still look wrapped up Instead, it'll probably be cast aside, or at least the face cloth will be unfurled and put aside. So another point then that John is making, and I think this might be significant, is that John has been tying in this idea of Jesus as the one who has been bound again and again. And the last time he was bound was into his death when he was buried. But now, John is kind of hinting that he has transcended that itself and he is free of the bindings. Now remember, when Lazarus was raised up, John made it a point to say that Lazarus came out of the grave still bound by the linen and with his face, face cloth still wrapped. And after that, someone had to come and unbind Lazarus. You see, Lazarus lived, but he was still waiting to die again another on another day. Yet here, it seems that Jesus has transcended the binding of death, being raised up to a new existence that is no longer bound to death, unhindered by that linen and the face cloth. And we see this hinted then in how there is something different about Jesus. People find it hard to recognize him at the first glance, 
and he starts to exhibit more supernatural abilities. He comes into a building where the doors are locked, he disappears and appears somewhere else. And in that sense, we can see that there's something different here. And John is showing us that Jesus, unlike Lazarus, who will eventually die again, is free from death and now has a glorified body that, while still fully human, is much more than just that. Thus, as he is raised up from the dead, the bindings of death remain behind. And it's symbolic that his resurrection is special. So if we understand this nuance then, we can see how it ties into this imagery that John has been using throughout his gospel and helps us to see that John is saying here, Jesus has transcended death, not merely raised from the dead as Lazarus was. And this reminds me of a story. There's a father and a son who are walking in a garden. The son noticed a bee and became very fearful and started to panic. Noticing that, the father caught the bee in his hand. And after a few moments, he released the bee. The son was still fearful as the bee came again near him. But then the father opened his fist to show where the bee had stung him. The stinger was stuck in his flesh. And he told his son, fear not, see, I have removed the sting. In the same way, for those who follow Jesus, the same power that raised him from the dead now resides within us. Death has lost its sting because Jesus took its sting on our behalf. Now, it might be a little shocking to see so much nuance to the passage that it's hard to see in the English translation. So I just want to assure you that if you don't know Greek, don't panic. You can still understand that John is showing us that this was not the work of grief robbers and he's telling us clearly that Jesus rose up. The Greek just helps us to get more details to help us catch these nuances better. So which is why it's good to learn the original language and that's why it's helpful for pastors and those who teach the Bible to learn. But for everyday reading, you're still good with the English. It serves its purpose well enough. You can never capture every nuance of a language perfectly when you translate. But despite that, the translation we have is sufficient for use. So don't take this as a diss against the English translation when I say, well, this something can be translated differently, but rather see it more as a footnote of the nuances that could be lost in translation. Right, now we come to verse 8, and we see that the other disciple has entered the tomb, and finally here, he saw. For the third time, another different Greek word is used to describe this action of seeing. And here, this word can have the implication that he beheld and he understood, rather than just his observing. So this won't be noticeable in the English, but it explains to us why John is using three different words in the Greek to explain the act of seeing. He's trying to show a movement from seeing to observing carefully and to finally understanding. So John is saying that this other disciple, he connected the dots and finally understood Jesus is no longer dead. And that's why he believed despite the extraordinary idea that this is, that a dead man rises again. 
Of course, they have seen Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So they are aware this is Jesus we are talking about and the normal rules doesn't apply. So finally, it just clicks. So verse 9 informs us therefore, right? That's only at this point, as he realizes this is something supernatural, that he comes to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. Then we come to verse 10 and we find that they go back to their homes which is super anticlimactic, right? You would have expected them to run to tell the others or respond in shock. But John says, they just decided to go back. Now John puts this here to make sure that we understand that while they believe that Jesus is alive, they still haven't quite connected that belief with just who Jesus is and what scripture says about the Messiah being raised up from the dead. They showed that while they believe, there is still something not quite right with their response. They needed another push before they can really believe the full scope of the gospel. Their hearts are moving in the right direction, but they're not quite there yet. And then the scene shifts and we see Mary weeping outside the tomb in verse 11. This is after the disciples have left. And when Mary looks into the tomb, she doesn't see an empty tomb. She sees two angels sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. And again, we see John point out to a supernatural aspect of the resurrection through the introduction of the angels. Angels had proclaimed his birth and it is only natural that they accompany his resurrection. And in verse 13, then they ask her why she is crying and she explains that they have taken away the body of Jesus. Clearly at this point, she still believes that someone has stolen the body and she had not reached the conclusion that the disciples did, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Then in verse 14, she turned about and she saw Jesus, but she doesn't recognize him. Perhaps in her grief, she was unable to turn her sight from the grave to realize that Jesus was right there. Perhaps she was still looking for a dead body and it just doesn't occur to her that the one speaking to her is actually Jesus. It's also possible that there's something about this risen glorified body of Jesus that made him a little different that at first glance she couldn't recognize him. I suspect the answer is all three factors mixing together. We then see in verse 15 that Jesus, however, was not content to leave matters as it is. So he spoke to her and he asked her, why is she weeping? Who is she looking for? And interestingly, Mary mistakes Jesus for the gardener. Now I mentioned during Good Friday that there was a Garden of Eden imagery here in this burial place. And there's a picture of it waiting for a second Adam. So it's ironic, right, that Mary mistakens Jesus to be the gardener. Because Jesus is ultimately a gardener in the sense that he's risen to take over Adam's job of tending to God's creation. Then we see in verse 16, Jesus simply calls her by her name and she realizes who, she is, who he is and cries out to him, teacher, and this reminds me of how Jesus said, his sheep will recognize his voice. And so at the call of his voice, she immediately recognizes who he is. 
Verse 17 then, we see that in response to her, Jesus gives her a command. He tells her not to cling to him because he has not ascended yet to the Father. Instead, she is to go to the other disciples to bring them a message. Now, while the exact meaning of this is still contested, I think what is happening here is perhaps she has fallen down to her feet, is clinging to Jesus, or maybe Jesus is speaking metaphorically to her in regards of not holding on to him in any physical sense. And the point that Jesus is trying to make here is he's trying to say that there's a change in how things will be for now. He has been raised from the dead, so there will be a change in the relationship. She no longer is to relate to him by sitting at his feet, to hear as he teaches. He has been transfigured and he's going to be with the Father soon. And thus, the way in which he will be with his disciples will now change. She is not meant to see the resurrection as the resumption of how things have been before. It's not continuing what's happening, but rather it's the next movement in God's plan for Jesus. Things will change. And as Jesus explains to her, he is to ascend to the Father, tying in what happens here to that picture from Daniel 7, where the Son of Man comes with a cloud to the Father, the Ancient of Days, to receive all authority and power. So this then is Jesus announcing his pending coronation in heaven, that he will be seated at the right hand of the Father to rule over, to judge over all things. And it is with this that Jesus entrusts this message to her to be delivered to the disciples. So we see in verse 18, Mary Magdalene, a woman, being exalted as the first person to see Jesus, to respond rightly, to bring the message of his resurrection to the disciple. So much for how some people condemn Christianity for being anti-woman. Here, a woman is shown to respond rightly and is exalted. And so with this, our passage ends with the words of Mary's proclamation, I have seen the Lord. So we now comes to what this means to us. The most important conclusion that we should make is that God is John goes to a lot of trouble to show us that Jesus really rose from the dead. The resurrection was witness, and the circumstances reported by eyewitness. And he makes it clear the body was not stolen away. So Christians are not proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus as a myth or a story or a fable or a legend. It is a fact. There is nothing else that can explain the details that is put here. There's nothing that can explain the response of the early church, the many witnesses who will later on see that they saw Jesus with their own eyes. Nothing else can explain why the early Christians were willing to die for this belief unless these were true things. And Jesus was raised up from the dead. And if Jesus really rose up from the dead, what does that mean to you? Will you seek the world that tells you dead people can never come to life? Or will you seek Jesus who rose from the dead and tells you 
that you shall put your trust in him to gain eternal life. Which would you choose? The world or Jesus? But note here, the point that John is making isn't only that we take the resurrection as information. It points us to this discrepancy between the disciples and Mary. And look what Jesus commanded Mary to do. She was to bring the word of the resurrected Jesus to his beloved brothers. This good news of the resurrection of Jesus is such important news and they need to hear it because it will change their lives. It will lead them to eternal life. And so in the same way, we too, as followers of Jesus, are to bring this news to those who do not know Christ. We are to proclaim the gospel and boldly proclaim that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Talking about proclaiming the gospel then, have you realized something interesting? Mary's witness itself is insufficient, isn't it? To bear witness requires two witnesses. And there was only her to bring the news to the other disciples. Yet we saw in this passage that there were two men who could have been bearers of this witness, didn't we? These were the disciples who knew Jesus and was known as men who had been given authority by Jesus. Yet, what did they do when confronted with the resurrection? They went home. They may have started to believe, but their faith was lacking in something. And they end up being unable to bring this news of life to others. If it was not for the mercy of Christ who continues to pursue them, they would have been so pitied because they were so close to this truth and yet they were unable to see it. In the same way, let us see that it's not enough for us to call ourselves disciples. It's not even enough for us, even if we have experienced the resurrection of Christ, we must come to that, engage with it, and respond to it rightly. Not suppress what we know of Christ and go home. So friends, don't just look to your activities as disciples to draw comfort that you're responding to Christ. Challenge yourself to see if you are disciples who will preach that Christ was raised from the dead. Anyone can put on a religious air. But what makes Christianity true and special is that Christ was risen from the dead. Therein lies the true test to see if you truly believe in a manner that matters. So this Easter Sunday, having heard of the witness from Scripture testified to you by the word of God himself, will you resolve to share this gospel to those who cross your path or are you going to ignore it and go home? As many of you are going to go home after this. There are many who are meant to be disciples of Jesus. And when they hear his word, they will come to realize and recognize him. Like sheep that returns back to the sheepfold. Will you then glorify God by being the one to bring the voice of Jesus through scripture to the ears of those who need to hear them? And if you are someone here who is listening, not because you believe, but because you've heard some things about Jesus, you're still looking for an answer. 
Can you see yourself in the two disciples? They will only come to truly believe once they realize that Jesus is the one the scripture teaches about. So will you continue then to look deeply into the scripture? Perhaps join Bible studies, read the Bible for yourself, join our Tuesday night training program and seek to find out if this Jesus is the one that all the scriptures talks about. Will you see if you recognize his voice as he calls you to salvation? It is Easter Sunday and this day has one central message that needs to go out to the entire world. Yet this message begins in your heart as you see Christ like Mary did. You can only proclaim faithfully if you genuinely believe and if you can say with conviction like Mary did, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ rose from the dead, that he took the sting of death through that resurrection. And we thank you, Father, for the faithful witness that speaks to us in Scripture with such detail that there is no room to doubt that these are real events witnessed by real people. Soften our hearts, Father. We will hear this and we will relive again that moment when we truly come to understand that Jesus was raised from the dead and help us to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.